from the newsroom of The Washington Post. Washington Post, this is Colby. Yeah, yeah. Hi, it's Stephanie McCrumman from The Washington Post. This is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Wednesday, February 13th. Today, why many Americans are getting a smaller tax refund this year, an investigation into the organ transplant system, and a Martian rover signs off. We're here today to launch our plans to bring back Main Street by reducing the crushing tax burden on our companies and on our workers. Back in 2017, President Trump delivered on a big campaign promise, tax reform. The foundation of our job creation agenda is to fundamentally reform our tax code for the first time in more than 30 years. That new tax plan took effect in 2018, and it was sold as a middle-class tax cut. But when people started doing their taxes and getting their refunds back from the IRS this year, they noticed something strange. Their refunds were shrinking. I first noticed it in my own taxes. Heather Long is an economics correspondent for The Post. So I am one of those people with a smaller refund. I had used, the prior year, had had a refund around the $2,000 level, which is pretty, actually the average. The average is just shy of $3,000 for last year. And so I did my taxes this year, and my refund is more like $200 this year. That was true for a lot of these people who'd already filed their taxes. They were getting smaller refunds. And that got a lot of people really angry. And then I started seeing on social media lots of posts of very upset people who were, like me, going from several thousand to several hundred dollars, big decline. Or some people who even went from having a several thousand dollar refund to owing money. They were really upset. And what were they saying? A lot of people were blaming the president and Republicans. They were calling it a GOP tax scam. They were including President Trump's, his uh, Twitter handle and saying, what happened to my middle class tax cut? I, I ended up paying more. So I think... Two things stick out. One, Americans love refunds. About 75% of Americans in recent years have received a refund. People really count on this money to come in in the spring or early winter and help them pay off mortgages or credit card bills or student loans or be good and put it in savings. And the second thing is people are totally confusing their refund amount with how much they actually paid in tax withholding for 2018. So the big key takeaway, if you remember nothing else, is that 80% of Americans did get a tax cut last year. So I'm in this circumstance. I got a tax cut in 2018. I can see that I paid lower taxes when I look at that part of my tax form. I saw in my biweekly payments we get at the Washington Post that my paychecks were fatter than they otherwise would have been. But my refund was also smaller because I paid in less tax throughout the year. So what is a withholding? That term is getting thrown around a lot right now. Withholding is the amount of money in your weekly or biweekly paycheck that the federal government is withholding or literally taking out of your paycheck to pay your federal income tax. Most of us don't notice it because we don't get paper paychecks anymore and we don't go line by line and look at what's been taken out for Social Security and Medicare payments. And that's the amount of what's known as withholding. So why is there a different amount that is being withheld from people's paychecks now? There's two things going on. So 
in December 2017, the Republicans and the president passed the largest change to the tax code in three decades. So there were a lot of changes that were going on. And every year, the Internal Revenue Service tries to adjust withholding a little bit to adjust to whatever the new laws are. Well, there were major law changes going on for the 2018 tax year. So they had to do a pretty dramatic, you know, it wasn't like going into the hair cutter and getting a snip. They had to do a total makeover, basically, of the withholding form. The second thing that happened is interesting. And this is, I think the IRS totally misread the outrage that we're seeing now. Most personal finance experts and economists tell you, you don't want to get a refund. That's bad. You have actually loaned the government money because you paid too much in from taxes over the year, and now you're getting a refund check back. So why do you want the government to have that? And in the interim, the government is making money off of your money. They're making interest. And exactly. so you want to hang on to your money so that you're the one that makes Amen. Interest. You're good at personal finance. <laughs> so the IRS thought they were helping people out when they were redoing the forms a year ago, they sat down and said, okay, let's try to make it so that more people pay the perfect tax amount, like the Goldilocks amount. So when they get to this point here in 2019 and they're filling out the forms like I just did, and I hope listeners are too, they won't owe anything and they won't get a refund back. And again, that's pretty good. Usually that's what your expert's telling you to do. However, that is not what Americans are used to, and that is not what a lot of Americans like. So what have people told you about how they're feeling about these tax returns? Well, in addition to the what seems like thousands of posts on social media of a lot of outrage, I've heard from people all over the country from all different income levels. My name's Chris Rothrock. I'm in Upstate, New York. I spoke with Chris. I'm a system administrator for a large bank. What happened with your tax refund? Well, it wasn't anywhere close to what I expected it to be. It was much lower than what I had gotten last year, by about $2,500 less. He actually made less money last year. So when you make less money, you tend to think that your taxes will also go down since you're not making as much. And yet he ended up paying $1,000 more. It was a very big surprise. I knew it was going to be lower. It's a surprise in how much it was. Like a lot of urban professionals, his taxes went up partially because he wasn't able to deduct as much money for his properties and property taxes. And because of the way the deductions changed, they actually ended up paying slightly more in taxes. Chris says his refund was down uh, $2,500. With my tax refund, I actually wanted to get caught up on some of my back pay bills. I caught up on some of them, but not nearly as many as I, as I needed to. It seems like financial planners will tell you planning your taxes so that you get a big return is actually bad because you're not making interest off your money. The government is making interest off your money. But at this point, it seems like tax returns are a big part of how people budget their finances, that they bank on the idea that they're going to get a big sum of money back at some point in the spring, and that will help them make big investments or buy a car or whatever, but that it's become a really foundational part about how Americans manage their money. You're 100% right. It's psychological. And a number of people tell me, and I even feel this way, and with my own, I'm an, a trained economist, and yet I like to get that refund still of $2,000. There's 
something about getting that one big chunk of money that makes you, a lot of people, make more responsible decisions with their money. Whereas they feel like if I get an extra 20 or 40 bucks in my paycheck every other week, I'm A, not going to notice it, and B, I might just spend it. It's kind of a safety net. Yeah, that's a great word for it. That's a great word for it. And again, I think the IRS, you know, I don't think they were trying to harm people. If anything, they were trying to help people and nudge them in the right direction to to be better with their personal finances. But in some ways, it totally backfired. So is the issue here that people are actually having more money taken away from taxes? Or is it just that the withholding was down, so now the return is down, and that feels bad for people, but their taxes were still less in the long run. For the vast majority of people, they paid less tax in 2018. That said, about 5% of Americans did see a tax increase. Is this in line with what President Trump had promised? Yes. (laughs) President Trump, when that big tax bill passed and he signed it, he promised Americans that they were getting a tax cut, particularly a big middle class tax cut is how he phrased it and framed it. Our framework ensures that the benefits of tax reform go to the middle class, not to the highest earners. It's a middle class bill. We have no choice. We must lower our taxes. That's what we're thinking of. That's what I want. An unbelievably low tax. And that is true. In 2018, the vast majority, 80% of Americans, did get a tax cut. But they're that 5%, and most of that 5% who saw a tax increase are people who live in urban areas, particularly areas that lean more democratic, like New York City or Washington, D.C. And a lot of people believe that was what the Republicans wanted. I want to work with Congress, Republicans and Democrats alike, on a plan that is pro-growth, pro-jobs, pro-worker, and pro-American. So this is one of a few annoyances that people are seeing with their tax returns this year. Obviously, a lot of people are seeing a smaller number, but then we had the shutdown. And that affected a lot of people because it affected the IRS. What's going on with that? It definitely affected the IRS. We can see that returns that were processed by the IRS through February 1st, there's several million fewer that were processed this year compared to a year ago. I've heard from readers who've told me that uh, they've been waiting two or three weeks, whereas in the past, they would, if you file online, that they would get their money in their bank account within days. There's somebody called the taxpayer advocate who sort of monitors the IRS in official capacity. And she put out a big report Tuesday to say basically the IRS wasn't answering the phone. So if people had questions, you know, we've made all these tax changes. It's, it's pretty confusing to fill out a new form this year. And that basically the phones just weren't being answered. There was a huge drop in responses on emails and phone calls because, again, tens of thousands of employees were not at work during that furlough period. So uh, everybody's been warning, and I think this is totally true. If that government shuts down Friday at midnight, that could be even worse because next week, the week of President's Day, is usually one of the highest volumes of tax filing of the year. So you can only imagine how pleased people are going to be when they cannot file that return or cannot get their refund. 
Heather Long is an economics correspondent for The Post. It is with great pleasure that I introduce our next speaker, who is our very first uterus transplantation patient. On March 7, 2016, the Cleveland Clinic held a press conference to announce a groundbreaking achievement. Okay. Sorry, I'm a little nervous, um, but thank you all for coming today. It was the first uterus transplant to ever take place in the U.S. I want to be open and honest and to share my story. And that began when I was 16 and was told I would never have children. And from that moment on, I've prayed that God would allow me the opportunity to experience pregnancy. And here we are today at the beginning of that journey. The surgery involved removing a uterus from a deceased donor in Miami and implanting it into a healthy young woman who'd been born with no uterus. That woman, Lindsay McFarland, was a 26-year-old from Texas who was already a mom to three children that she'd adopted. But now she was going to have the chance to have a child naturally. We were prepared for, you know, there's always that chance that this won't work out. But from everything we have been told the morning that we were told to get on a plane, it was like, this is a perfect donor. You know, she had had her own healthy pregnancies and babies and things like that. And so we just felt at peace with our decision to say yes. It took nine hours. It was a major surgery. That's Lenny Bernstein, a post-health reporter who wrote about the surgery at the time. By all accounts, it was considered a success. They held a press conference two weeks later, which you don't do unless you think you have a successful surgery, to introduce Lindsay and her husband to the public and say she is looking forward to becoming a mom someday. This has been a research project that brings hope for women and families who wish to experience pregnancy and bear children. I'm extremely proud of this organization and this team that has come together with this amazing accomplishment. And then what happened? That same day, Lindsay began bleeding. I had bled through all of my bandaging as well as the clothes that I had on. So I was like, okay, you know, I probably just unsettled some stitches or something, the nurses immediately changed me, and within another hour, I had bled through that. She was taken back into surgery. Doctors decided they needed to go in and look at what was going on, and it turned out that Lindsay had an infection in the artery that leads to the uterus, and the damage was extensive enough that the uterus had to be removed, and that artery had to be tied off, and Lindsay lost her chance to give birth naturally. So this first uterine transplant in America, it failed? It did. It failed because of that infection. When Lindsay woke up from surgery, her husband and her doctors were all standing around her bed. They gave her the news. Her uterus was gone. Lindsay was shocked and disappointed, And she didn't realize it at the time, but the infection in her uterus had begun to spread. At one point, they were contemplating whether or not they were going to have to amputate my leg. When she came out of all that, 
she felt lucky to be alive, and she just wanted to go home to her boys. She started moving on with her life. She and her husband actually decided to adopt two more children. I, I still have days where I get sad, but I'm very blessed with the life that I do have. And I mean, I'm grateful I had the opportunity. I wouldn't take it back, but that doesn't mean it doesn't hurt when, especially on times like now where I'm coming up on the third anniversary of Transplant Day, like those are the hard days. And for a while, that was the end of the story until Lenny got a tip. In doing my reporting, I spoke with a number of people who kind of led me down a path. And eventually I came to have some emails that were sent to the authorities that govern transplantation. The whistleblower who sent those emails was writing about the organization that had collected Lindsay's uterus from the deceased donor in Miami. And this person was alleging that the organization had known almost immediately that the uterus had a serious risk of infection. And they hadn't reported it to the transplant hospital. They ran the various tests that they're supposed to test. And they discovered that there was an infection in the urine and in the bladder. Not in the uterus. We need to be very clear. But an infection like that is a red flag. You want to make sure that that infection hasn't gotten anywhere else. If you're transplanting a uterus, you want to make sure it hasn't gotten to the uterus. So they were absolutely required to notify the Cleveland Clinic of what they found. And why didn't they notify the Cleveland Clinic? They say they did. They say that they notified them within three hours. The Cleveland Clinic says, we never heard anything from anyone. And we transplanted that uterus and we didn't use antifungal medications. It's not 100% clear that even if Lindsay were taking the antifungal medications, she would have been okay. We don't know that. We can't peer into what didn't happen. But it would have been helpful for her surgeons to have the information to to know that at, the, at least they could take extra precautionary measures to, to give her the best chance of success. Of course. Um, and not only that, it's required. Uh, under the rules that govern organ transplantation, you must tell the surgeon within 24 hours of seeing any tests that show infection. And what Lenny realized through the process of his reporting was that the transplant organization that was supposed to test Lindsay's uterus had been accused of making other errors. At the time of Lindsay's transplant, that organization was listed in a National Transplant Network database as a member not in good standing, a designation that indicated a, quote, serious lapse in patient safety or quality of care. But the reasons for that designation are secret. What we do know is that because it wasn't in good standing, it was supposed to undergo monitoring and corrective measures, but there's no information about what those measures entailed. And the organization was free to keep operating and to keep collecting organs in Miami. If they were being punished, we would never know because all the consequences occur behind closed doors. Lenny says that there's a serious lack of oversight and accountability for transplant organizations like the one in Miami. And the reasons for that have a lot to do with the way that the transplant industry works in America. So I don't know a ton about organ transplants, but my assumption was that you basically have a situation where someone at a hospital 
passes away and their organs are open for donation and someone at another hospital needs an organ. And then those two hospitals talk to each other and then they coordinate and they get the organ from the one hospital to the next and then that's it. But you're saying that it doesn't work like that. No, that's what everyone thinks. That's what I thought. In the 80s, Congress established this network of organ procurement organizations and they are the middleman between those two hospitals. In shorthand, they're called OPOs. How it works is that someone is declared dead. Then the OPO comes in and keeps the person's bodily functions ongoing, even though there is no hope of recovery. They keep the blood flowing. They keep the body hydrated for as long as 24 or 36 hours. They arrange for the organs to be taken out and then, as quickly as possible, send them on their way to the transplant surgeons, sometimes at distant parts of the country. And they run tests. As part of that function, they test these organs for very good reasons. You want to know if the organ has cancer in it. You want to know if the organ has infection. They're getting a lot of organs from people who die of opioid overdoses, so you want to know if that person has hepatitis C. You want to test organs for HIV. So this is a really important job. But the responsibility for making sure that it's done right is split up between a number of different organizations. So it's very fractured. The United Network for Organ Sharing, which it itself is a nonprofit organization, they coordinate the entire system and they are responsible for overseeing those nonprofits and making sure they're doing their jobs and doing them safely and doing them correctly. But doesn't the government keep tabs on these nonprofits and whether they're adhering to regulations about about organ transplants? Not much. The Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services does do some spot checks, but they're mainly interested in sort of credentialing and paperwork, and they are the only agency that has the authority to actually shut down an OPO. But that almost never happens. There have been some lawmakers and advocates calling for better oversight of these transplant organizations. But there's also a lot of resistance to that idea, even among hospitals and patient advocates. For starters, each geographic area in the country only has one transplant organization that oversees all of the organ donations in that area. So if you were to close or suspend one of them, there wouldn't be anyone to collect organs there. Each OPO is chartered by the government. And there's only one. It's kind of like a utility, right? You know, you, you either you get your electricity from the local utility or you don't. There's no options. And one defense of all the secrecy around this system is that there could be a risk to the privacy of the organ donors and their families and the organ recipients. But what people like uh, Senator Todd Young and other activist groups are saying is we could do all this with de-identified information. We don't need to know this person or that person. We could find a way to bring these things into the sunlight without actually compromising any particular person. UNOS and the OPOs have been resistant to that. It's a really difficult question, right? How do you balance that guarantee of anonymity with the recipient's right to know what they may need to know about that organ? And then there's the reality of the organ donation system right now. There's 114,000 people on the waiting list 
for organs right now. What many of the critics of the system complain is that it's not because Americans don't donate as much as they should. It's because OPOs, the people who procure the organs, are not doing a, as good a job as they can in collecting these organs. They could be collecting many more. And surgeons who are extremely worried about poor outcomes are rejecting any organs that are even in the least bit marginal. And that might be the biggest reason why there's a resistance to more regulation of organ transplants. Because getting an organ is an incredible gift. And when it happens to you, you don't really care where it comes from or whether the people collecting that organ have a perfect record. No one ever really thinks about it, right? Someone says, your kidney's here. It's good. Let's go. Nobody says, well, where does it come from? Did it come from Miami? where, you know, there's a little notice on the website that says they're on a member not in good standing. Did it come from Philadelphia? Did it come? You, no, I'm in desperate straits. I'm very sick. I am taking that kidney if my surgeon says it's a healthy kidney. No questions asked. Except in Lindsay's case, this uterus wasn't going to save her life. It was her one and only chance to conceive a child. And because the transplant was so high stakes for Lindsay and for the Cleveland Clinic and for the American medical community, they wanted to use the perfect donor uterus. And they say that they didn't have the information that they needed to know that it wasn't perfect. Lindsay's doctors, if they had even the smallest doubt about that uterus, they would have just waited for the next one. And so after all of this reporting, Lenny decided to tell Lindsay what he'd learned. In his message, he said that he had some pretty complicated things to discuss with me involving my transplant. So, you know, that could be a hundred million different things. So I was, I was pretty anxious to have that phone call. And then when he explained the whole story, like, I think I was shocked, like, oh my goodness, this really happens. Like this is a lifetime movie type situation. And even though she'd already made peace with the fact that experiencing pregnancy just wasn't going to be in the cards for her, hearing about what exactly went wrong made her start thinking. You know, this this was a one in a million chance is what it feels like for me to experience pregnancy and the fact that they failed to make any reports like I've lost my shot. To be clear, we can't know for sure if the infection came from the transplanted organ or if it was already in Lindsay's body. But she still wonders how things might have gone if the infection had been reported to her doctors. What if they had made the call, like, where, you know, would we be today? Would the transplant have gone on and been successful? And then in my mind, I, I have two beautiful kids that I've gone on, that we've gone on to adopt since transplant. And then I'm like, well, I wouldn't be blessed to have, you know, my youngest two. And so it's, that push and pull of, I'm grateful for the life that I have, but at the same time, I'm curious how would it have been different if it would have been different. Lindsay McFarland lives with her husband and five adopted children in Arlington, Texas. Lenny Bernstein is a health and science reporter for The Post.
And now, one more thing from post-science reporter Sarah Kaplan. It's about opportunity. A little Mars rover that was supposed to roam the planet for 90 days, but carried on for 15 years. Opportunity basically transformed the way we think about Mars. They found evidence that Mars used to have liquid water on its surface, which meant that Mars used to be a habitable world. If Mars had water and probably an atmosphere, could it have had life? And that's basically been the driving force behind all of our exploration of Mars since. But something happened to the Mars rover. So last spring, Opportunity got caught in this gigantic dust storm on Mars. It eventually grew so large that it encircled the whole planet. And NASA had hoped that when the storm was over, Opportunity would wake back up and call back home and continue going about its mission. So this month, they started some kind of Hail Mary efforts to reboot the rover. And ultimately this week, they decided, we're probably never going to hear from the rover again. It is therefore that I'm standing here with a sense of deep appreciation and gratitude that I declare the Opportunity mission as complete. Opportunity's mission is over, but it's on Mars forever. And the Associate Administrator for Science, Thomas Zerbuchen, likes to think of these kind of carcasses of rovers past as monuments to exploration. You know, if human explorers or other spacecraft go to Mars back to that same place one day, they're going to see opportunity and see this sign of the one that was there first. And so that's kind of what opportunity is. Opportunity is like a, a monument now. Sarah says that opportunity will be survived by the many people who helped get it to Mars. The planetary scientists who analyze the data for this mission say they often felt like they could just reach out and touch Mars, and Mars inhabited their dreams. Sarah Kaplan covers science for The Post. That's it for today's show. We want to hear about what you think about the podcast, so head to postreports.com survey and share your thoughts. People who complete the survey can enter to win one of five Amazon gift cards, each worth $100. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post. making post reports for a couple months now. And we want to hear what you think about the show. Go to postreports.com slash survey to share your thoughts. It takes just a few minutes and you'll be entered to win a $100 Amazon gift card. That's postreports.com slash survey.